Well, today is the second Sunday in Advent, and Advent is a season in which we prepare for the coming of God himself. Uh, We look past to his first coming, and we look forward to his second coming. And this is also a time in which we take an honest look at the darkness of not just the world around us, but also the, the darkness that looms within our own hearts. And we ask that God would break into this world that he would reveal himself to us in the midst of this. Now, if you lean into both of the, or if you lean into this theme of Advent, uh, if if this becomes an annual rhythm uh, in your own spiritual practice, uh, if you call a church-like restoration your home, inevitably you're going to start feeling a tension. Uh, Some of you might even be feeling it right now, but you're going to feel this tension in your spiritual walk. Uh, Attention between what our culture says is right now and what the historical church says is right now. So culture is very much saying, yay, it's Christmas time. Uh, Let's put up lights. Uh, Let's let's go shopping, you know, And, and the church is like, it is Advent. This is a solemn time. Now, in our household... Uh, this tension is, is probably the most uncomfortable, the, the most fierce, the most divisive uh, when we're decorating Christmas cookies. Uh, it is a, a very challenging time for our family, isn't it, Marin? This is where you're supposed to say yes, yes, it is. Uh, because while my, my wife and my sweet daughters are, are frosting uh, green Christmas trees and wreaths and uh, lovely uh, brown reindeer and uh, uh, white snowmen and yellow trees, um, I'm busy inscribing on my Christmas cookies uh, biblical, proper messages of Advent. Um, so like my reindeer, for example, say things across them like, prepare for the way of God's judgment. Um, my Santas are saying things like, contend with the darkness in your soul. Um, the, the snowmen have their, their twig arms in the air and they're, they're yelling out, repent. Um, and this causes tension in our, in our family. Uh, my, my wife can attest to that as well. Um, So if you're wondering why you've never received those kinds of Christmas cookies from our family, it's because they don't allow me to give them out. Um, So you can pray for our family uh, during, during this tumultuous season of the year. But my point is that Advent is not normal. Uh, It's not normal for us to dwell on the themes that Advent confronts us with. Specifically, it's the message of Advent is one that is kind of unpalatable for us. Today in, in the gospel reading that, that I read from Matthew's gospel, uh, we encounter John the Baptist. And John loudly and boldly is sent to prepare the way of God. And what's the first word out of his mouth? Repent. That's the first thing that he says. That is, turn from your evil ways. And he invites the people to enter into this baptism of repentance. And then when the religious leaders come here, he he condemns them. And he says, you brood of vipers. And he tells all the people there to to put aside their sinful habits and their wicked desires. And to, to set their course square on the Lord alone. Now, generally speaking, that kind of message, a message of repentance, isn't a popular one. 
especially when you're establishing a relationship with someone. If, if you go on a first date with someone, usually the, the first thing you discuss with them is not, um, hey, I've noticed some things about you and, uh, that you need to change uh, and kind of start off that way. But when it comes to our relationship with God, the first word is always repent. So do you want to experience the blessings of God? Do you want to receive the assurance of forgiveness? Do you want to receive that supernatural peace or that, that hope of eternal glory? Well, the first step is to allow the Lord, by the power of his, his Holy Spirit, as a gift of grace, to allow Him to change your life, to move you from setting down this course and to, get, uh, to be placed on His beautiful and righteous path. So like I said, this, this isn't a, a common message. Uh, but this does bring us to that reading from Zechariah this morning. And that's what I'm going to be preaching from today, um, the message from Zechariah. Now, this prophet uh, it comes towards the end of Old Testament history. Uh, the Jews, they've, they've returned back to their homeland, and they're surprised by what they encounter there. They, they thought that when they returned back from their exile, that they would have, um, their, their punishment would have been done with and dealt with. And when they came back, that the, the land was going to sort of um, bloom uh, with flower and just a beautiful array of God's glory. They thought that, that the, uh, Jerusalem would be lifted up high again and that all the nations would come and behold their glory. But instead, what they encounter is their homeland is just absolutely in desolation. Uh, they look at the holy temple and it's, it's just literally the stones are scattered across the countryside. One scholar says that, that the temple sort of looked like this decaying skeleton, sort of being this unclean, uh, filthy reminder of all the past sins of the previous generations. And this is what the people are coming back to. They see everything in ruined. And the people have been commissioned, first and foremost, rebuild the temple. Prioritize the temple. Rebuild the temple. Now, interestingly, because Zechariah tells us the exact month that he's writing in, uh, we know that he's also writing just two months uh, away from the prophet Haggai, um, which is interesting. We'll actually return to that point here in a minute. Now, the key phrase in this passage that we just read from Zechariah, and it probably leapt out to you, I'm sure, as, as you heard it being read this morning, but it's when God says, return to me, and I will return to you. I love that word return. Uh, that is a rich uh, Hebrew word. Um, in fact, that word, it can be translated two or three different ways. And, and we see it in this passage translated differently. Here in that verse that I just read, that word, it's the, the Hebrew word is shuv. Um, in seminary, they tell you not to say Hebrew words when you're preaching, but that's kind of a fun one, shuv. Okay, that's, that's a beautiful word, right? Uh, so it's translated return there at the beginning, but then later on, the same word appears, but in our English translations, there it's translated as repent. Return and repent. It's the same word. This is a passage of repentance. The whole passage is God's call of the people to return to him, to, to, to repent of their sins, to come back to him. 
So I want to pull from this three themes uh, from this passage. I'm not going to go through it uh, verse by verse. We, we don't have time for that. Um, but I do see, think that there's three themes that sort of emerge to the surface of this. And just as a warning, uh, the first two themes are relatively negative. Uh, it's, it's the minor prophets. Shocker there. Uh, but the third theme is going to be rather hopeful, I think. So, uh, how does this begin? Well, it says that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Now, in the original Hebrew, that sentence actually begins and ends with the word angry. And so our English translators just say very angry. But if you were to read this in the Hebrew, it would say angry the Lord was with your fathers. Angry. And so you'd be rattled as you, as you hear this. And I think the, the first theme that sort of emerges from this is the Lord's anger. And anger is obviously an uncomfortable topic. Uh, and I, I think uh, for many reasons, we ourselves are very uncomfortable when it comes to contemplating uh, God's anger. And I think part of the reason why is because we project our own reasons for being angry uh, upon the Lord. Or maybe we've been the recipients of human anger and we associate that with the Lord's anger. Because more often than not, human beings, when we express anger, it's because we've somehow um, lost control of a situation. Maybe we see power sort of, um, uh, we, we lose any sense of power over the things that are in our lives. Um, and so as a defense mechanism, we get angry against that. Or maybe we don't get our way like a child or something, and then we just sort of erupt into anger. That's, that's sort of the only reaction that we know what to do. But that is not the Lord's motivation for becoming angry. He's not angry because of a lack of control. He controls all things. All things are in his hand. Rather, instead, God's anger is a holy reaction against evil and injustice. You see, God does not compromise on his holiness. And so when he sees his goodness sort of being warped by human beings and, and sort of transformed into their own selfish gains or their, their own selfish pursuits and their unjust causes, well, that, uh, that is what causes God to be angry. It is a judgment against evil itself. And God's anger is actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. We want to see judgment against evil itself. Do we not? I mean, think about the, the massive atrocities that we see in this world. The evil that we experience, that we witness, just even in our own headlines, um, is overwhelming. And we as individual human beings, and then the institutions that we partner with, that we're a part of, uh, even these are not have enough control or power or ability to fully address the realities, the sophistication, the heaviness of evil itself. And that is why we can only place our hope in God to fully eradicate evil. Thank God we worship, or praise the Lord, that He is a God who we worship, a God who, who sees evil and gets angry at it, who says, I will do something about this. So, this moves us to the second theme. What is it that stirs up God's anger in this situation? And so here we see that God, His, his anger is sparked because of the sin of the people. God speaks both against the, the previous generations, the sin of the, the fathers, but then he also speaks to the evil of, this, of the present generation of Zechariah's day. 
He tells the, he, he reminds the people, didn't I send your forefathers, the prophets, and didn't I tell them to, to turn from their evil ways, to turn from their wicked deeds? And we don't have time to go into it, but if we were to do a, a survey of the entire Old Testament, we would see over and over again that the, the sins that the people constantly fell into were the sins of um, idolatry, uh, that is, of, of placing other things uh, of a higher value than God, but then also sins of hypocrisy, that is, um, uh, saying that they believe things, but then going about their daily lives as if, as if there's no connection there. So sin of idolatry and hypocrisy. But what about the, the people in Zechariah's day? Because if we were to look through this passage, the, the prophet Zechariah, he's not naming specific sins here in this passage. Uh, it doesn't seem to indicate that it's idolatry and hypocrisy that are um, tearing apart the people right now. So what exactly is it? And whatever it is, it's, it's making God just as angry as he was with previous generations. So we're going to cheat for a little bit. Do you, do you remember earlier how I said that that Haggai was written the same time as Zechariah. So we're going we're gonna to hop over to Haggai for a little bit because Haggai actually names what the present generation was wrestling with. He names the sin of the people. And here Haggai tells us quite clearly that the people, well, they had stopped repairing the temple. They stopped rebuilding the temple. Haggai says to the people, you, you're spending this time in improving your own homes, kind of, putting up these, these nice panels in your home and sort of polishing your homes, making them more beautiful, while God's house remains in ruin. You see, the people were spending their time, their, their money, their energy, um, making their own homes more comfortable and attractive. And you might be asking yourself, well, what's wrong with that? Like, doesn't God um, call us as his image bearers to kind of bring beauty to the world around us? I mean, don't we ourselves, isn't that a form of, of how we worship God is, is by um, being drawn into his presence through beautiful things? Doesn't God want his people to, to be safe and, and free to worship him? Isn't that what any normal person would do? Is kind of create a, a beautiful, safe environment like this? Isn't it normal to want to have a, a certain degree of comfort? Yes. Those things are good. The problem isn't that they're striving for a beautiful life. The problem is that they're doing so at the expense of repairing the Lord's temple. You see, in the Old Testament, the temple is an icon of what God is going to eventually do through His Son, Jesus Christ. The entire Old Testament is this, is this moment in which God is giving the people the language and the, and the theology and the, the, the routines and the ritual to understand what his son Jesus would be doing on the cross. It's supposed to be this foretaste of what God would do even eventually with all of creation. That the temple was going to be a place where you could come and be declared right with God. That if there's conflict between you, that there were people there in the temple who would be able to administer justice to your situation. If you were impoverished, you were supposed to be able to come to the temple and be cared for out of the generosity of the people. You see, the temple is a place where you could come and you could encounter the goodness of what God intends creation to be. But here, in Zechariah's day, the temple was literally scattered all over the place. The world wasn't seeing this icon of, of beauty and holiness about them. In other words, what the people were doing is they were starting to act like as if the kingdom of God 
had no bearing on their lives. They were acting like all the other tribes and the nations around them. They were tending to their own things. This is the sin of the people, is that they were just being normal. They weren't having the radical lives of building up the kingdom of God. And this is why God was so angry. So the second theme that we see is the sin of the people. So thirdly, for this one, I want to return to that key passage. This is so beautiful. This is when God says, return to me and I will punish you forever. No, (laughs) return to me. I'm going to rub your face in it. No, he says, return to me and I'm going to return to you. I'm going to give you myself. We're going to be back in right relationship with one another. Return to me and I will return to you. You see, first God calls his people to repent, to change directions, to to come back to him. And then he says, I will return to you. I'm going to put my anger aside. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to receive you. I'm going to come back to you. So no matter the severity of your sin, no matter the gravity of it, the the way in which it wears you down and, and sort of crushes you, God's desire is always for you. Generation after generation after generation, God is constantly inviting his people again back into relationship with him. And that serves as, as, a, as a reminder to us, even though in our own lives, time and time again, we stumble and we fall. But God is always there extending the invitation for you to come back and to return. So you know earlier how I said that the, word, the Hebrew word shuv can be translated as return and also as repent. There's also a third way that it can be translated. Do you want to guess what it is? Okay. I know. Guess what Rick is thinking sort of situation. I'm sorry. But a third way that this word can be translated is the word restore. Restore. So we're going to change the name of our church from Restoration to Repent Anglican Church. And I'm really excited about that. Um, but this is, this is a word that we have been singing at this church and celebrating at this church ever since the beginning. In fact, we often um, sing from Psalm uh, 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It's that same word, shuv. Restore, return, repent. So when God calls you to repent, he's calling you into his restoration. He wants to pick up the broken fragments of your life and piece them back together into a way that is whole and perfect and more radiant and beautiful than it's ever been. He wants to give you a purpose to your life, not just for your, your own sake, but he wants you to know that you're, you're a part of something that's much larger than him, or larger than you. It's a part of him, part of his kingdom. That you're participating in, in a way of sharing his gospel, his good news, his freedom with the world around you. He wants to be first in your life. He doesn't want you to have any other idols. He wants you to be first. He wants to be first in your life because only then will all will this peace sort of permeate every other circumstance in your life, no matter how challenging it is. He wants you to, to put aside hypocrisy. He wants your, your beliefs and your actions to be perfectly aligned so that you're not tormented by guilt or trying to juggle uh, all these different conflicting lies in your life anymore. He wants you to be investing first and foremost in his kingdom. And I don't mean just like give your money to the church, although that'd be great too. But what I mean is like through your vocations, through the decisions you make, through the ways in which you spend your time, how can you do so in a way that is oriented towards the the coming of Christ's kingdom in your context? 
You see, when God calls you to repent, He's seeking for your wholeness, for your restoration. Because He wants you to, to, he wants to be close to you. Return to me and I will return to you. And how do we know this is true? Because he's already done it. He's already done this through his son Jesus Christ. We know through the historical fact of his death and resurrection that he wants to be near his people. That's what we're preparing for. We're preparing for the advent of God in which he'll be close to his people again. Just as he did it through his son Jesus Christ, he's going to do this again on a cosmic scale where every atom in this world is going to be reoriented into the purposes of God. He wants to restore you to himself. So we're going to take a little um, detour for a minute. We're going to go to John's Gospel, which is not what I read today. It's a different story. But we're going to go to the end of John's Gospel, John uh, 21. And this is is a beautiful moment in which um, Jesus is trying to meet his disciples. He's trying to meet his disciples. So Jesus has been crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And then there's this moment when he visits his disciples in John's Gospel, and he, he breathes upon them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And that's the same Spirit that animated his life. The same Spirit that was able to, to heal the broken, uh, to turn uh, water into wine, uh, to, to explore the wisdom of God and pronounce that and share that. And he breathes that same Spirit upon his disciples equipping them with the same power that he has. Well, then the Apostle Peter, he he has kind of an unusual response. It happens a couple paragraphs later, but after being equipped with the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm going to go fishing. And you're like, okay, well, it's kind of weird. And all the disciples are like, well, I'm going to go fishing too. And and fishing's great. God doesn't have anything against fishing, uh, I don't don't think. Um, Yeah, he calls fishermen. He doesn't have anything against fishing. Fishing's a beautiful thing. So he says, uh, Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And, and if you know the story, how many fish did they catch that night? Zero. Zero. Yeah, there's no fish. Nothing comes up. And again, that, that, that's not a judgment against fishing. What it is, though, it, it, it kind of reminds the disciples, what are you doing right now? Like, it causes them to ask the question, like, what are you doing right now? This, Jesus just filled you with the Holy Spirit. You, you've heard his teachings. You know what you're supposed to be doing. And so the rest of the chapter is Jesus finding the disciples. And he restores them back to the work that he has called them to. To what they're supposed to be doing. He finds them on a beach. He, he cooks breakfast for them. And then he essentially says to them, Your lives are never to be normal again. You're supposed to be fishing for men. Feed my sheep. And so friends, you and I here in in the Twin Cities or wherever you might be, we're not called to live normal lives. And I don't mean that that you're supposed to go home and write repent on all your snowmen. Um, If you want to do that, go for it. But we're not supposed to live normal lives. And you won't be happy if that's your pursuit. You see, when things become difficult, it's it's so easy for us. Our our temptation is to just be doing what the rest of the neighborhood is doing, to see what the rest of the nation is doing, and to kind of fall into those habits. That's what the people in Zechariah's day did. That's what the disciples were doing. And that's our temptation as well. But we worship a God who has the power to eradicate evil. He gives us the power to to break the chains of evil in our own lives, 
to declare peace to our neighbors, to forgive sins, to feed us with his, with his very presence. He is the God who promises to be with us. Return to me, and I will return to you, says our God. So let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, the sin of this world is overwhelming. The sin in our own hearts is overwhelming. And we don't, we don't have the power to change it on our own, Lord. And so truly, we need you to break into our lives, Lord. To pull us back to yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit. Form us more into your likeness, Lord. Because we want to be with you. We want to know your beauty, Lord. We want to know your goodness. We want to walk in a way that, that just um, that, that's filled with peace. For our own sake, Lord, but also for those who we love, for our friends, our families, our neighbors, Lord. And Lord, I pray for this church, for this body, Lord, this place. May this be a place that radiates your beauty and your goodness and your restoration to the world around us, Lord. Use us, Lord. Purge us from evil and make us more and more like you. We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.